Um, welcome. Good to be with you this morning, and a big hello to those of you joining online who can probably hear me now. Um, today we're continuing our journey through First Timothy, which is really exciting. And I, I thought maybe during the Greek time I would um, get you guys to uh, sort of share this question discussion pointer amongst yourselves, but then I thought better of it, because the question I was going to ask was, um, have you ever had a bad workplace experience? And there's a reason I didn't get you guys to share that in this sort of space, because I don't think we've really got the capacity to, to, to deal with the emotional fall that might have occurred as a result. But, you know, maybe um, whether you're currently working or you're, you're retired or you're just stepping into the workforce, um, workplaces are a really interesting microcosm of society and, and community, you know. Um, and often you can find that, that the challenging aspects of doing life together in community happens in the workplace. So maybe it is that you work in an office and, you know, Cheryl Lander from finance is always horrible to you every time you put in a claim form. We went with the name Cheryl Lander because we said if we used any other name, there would be someone with that name and they would be offended. So if your name is Cheryl Lander this morning, I apologise profusely, it's not personal. Uh, maybe you, you're self-employed or you run a business and, you know, you're chasing up unpaid invoices from about five months ago and all of a sudden the people who, you know, need to pay you the money just aren't answering their phones anymore, probably because they're overseas on holiday. Um, or maybe, you know, you work in a cafe, you know, it's a first job, and there's always these group of customers that come in and they're so rude and obnoxious all the time and it makes you go, ah, oh, people, people are great and people are terrible at the same time. Um, there's a show that used to be on TV, I think it's still running reruns on cable, um, called Undercover Boss. Anyone aware of the show Undercover Boss? It's where you get a CEO of a large multinational corporation, think like Telstra or, or BHP or Qantas, and, and they, they dress the CEO up so they're pretty much unrecognisable and they, they put him or her in a really menial entry-level role within the company, you know, like the baggage handler or checkout chick or, or something like that. And it's designed to give them a bit of an um, understanding of what, it, what it's like to be on the front lines of working in your organisation. All of a sudden, they're the ones that are copying the abuse from the customers. All of a sudden, they're the ones that have got the unrealistic deadlines to meet. And it's a really interesting thing to observe as um, these CEOs who are used to being on the 50th floor of the building, sort of watching everything from a, from a sort of macro level, are now having to deal with the frontline stuff. And they all of a sudden feel like there's a, an empathy that grows within them and they need to uh, start creating better working conditions for their employees or, or even performance managing certain people out of roles because they haven't been good to people on the team. And it gives them an insight of what it's like to be an employee in those uh, organisations. And it's, it's really interesting, it's timely for us as we continue our journey through First Timothy today, uh, because what Paul talks about in this passage is a lot about work and money and power and how it translates to our faith journey. So if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, would you turn with me to First Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 5, and I'll be reading from the NIV this morning. It says, all those who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should show them, not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better 
because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think godliness is a means to financial gain. This is God's Word. Nice, easy passage this morning. Just before we get into unpacking what this actually means for us, I wanted to just sort of address the elephant in the room with this passage around slavery. Now, we look at this passage and sometimes we're not sure exactly what to do with the slavery bit. You know, some people would read it and go, well, this is the Bible condoning slavery. You know, the Bible says it's totally fine for you to have slaves as long as you treat them well. And I want to counteract that this morning because we need to understand the context to which Paul was writing to the Ephesian church. See, scholars suggested that in excess of a third of the people in Asia Minor at the time that the New Testament was written were slaves. So when Paul writes to Timothy to um, give him instructions about how people are to live their lives as followers of Jesus... It's not to say that the slavery is condoned or or encouraged, but it needs to be addressed because for a a significant portion of the community, that's their reality. That is their experience. And there's a, a portion of, a significant portion of the Ephesian church who are hearing this letter from Paul and slavery is the reality of their daily life. And back then, slavery was common, but it was also really varied. You know, some slaves were treated like members of the family. Uh, They were given a lot of authority and a lot of trust and a lot of respect, and they were welcomed in as if they were part of the family. And other slaves were treated terribly, working terrible jobs with terrible conditions and and almost treated in a subhuman way. So contextually, uh, even though the passage refers to slavery slavery without outrightly condemning it, when we look at the the whole narrative of Scripture, we can see that the idea of slavery is incompatible with the message of the gospel. You know, we see the whole idea of Jesus coming to take people out of bondage, to take people out of being oppressed, to take people out of being treated as commodities and given value and worth and life and liberty and hope. So when we look at the gospel narrative, we can see slavery is absolutely not what the gospel condones, but it's the reality of the context in which the letter is being written written to them. And most of us, I hope, don't contend with owning slaves or being indentured into slavery as part of our everyday existence. The, the context that we um, involve, find ourselves involved with usually involves work. You know, people who are either employing other people or are employed by other people. And so today, whether you're uh, currently working, you're in some form of employment, whether you're retired and and work was something that you you did and now you're enjoying a season of rest after a significant period of doing that, or, you know, maybe it is that you employ other people, or as you go about your life as as a daily thing, you interact with people who are working as a customer or as a, a sort of recipient of service. There's some stuff in this passage 
that Paul is saying that does apply to you and I today, as long as we put it in the right context, yeah. And so the first thing that Paul actually is talking about to Timothy and the, the broader Ephesian church here is around the respect, respecting authority. In verse 1 and 2, it says this. It says, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. And Paul begins his writing here uh, reminding slaves to respect their masters even if their masters are unbelievers. He emphasises that this attitude of respecting authority is crucial for maintaining the reputation of the gospel. And the reputation of the, the gospel is actually undermined by people who say that they're Christians and followers of Jesus acting in a way that is disrespectful or rebellious. And I want to say this morning that respect doesn't mean not having boundaries. Respecting your employer, respecting a customer at a workplace, respecting people doesn't necessarily mean you don't need to have boundaries. It's not being a doormat. It's not saying, you can just do whatever you want, I'm going to respect you because you've been placed in a position of authority over me. Some places of work are going to be places where abuse happens. That doesn't mean, as Christians, we should step back and let that happen. There is a time for stepping forward and calling out bad behaviour, and that is not disrespectful. Some places will overwork you. Some places will undercompensate you. And some places will treat you like a slave. Respecting your boss, respecting your supervisor, doesn't mean you allow those boundaries to be violated. But what Paul is talking about here is that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, how you treat people matters. See, you can believe the right things. You can say the right things. You can be in here and worship your heart out and pray the right prayers and look the part. But when you leave this building and you go about your life in your workplace, in your community, the biggest calling card you leave behind isn't what you say, isn't what you do, isn't where you spend your time on a Sunday. It's your behaviour. Your behaviour is the biggest calling card you leave. And Paul says, because if we don't get this right, if we don't treat people with respect, if we don't engage with people with a level of trust and respect and love, God's name and our teaching may be open to slander. As a follower of Jesus today, how you treat people matters. More than what you profess, more than what label you wear, it's about your behaviour and it sets out how people view you and as a result, view Jesus. What he's saying is you are Jesus' ambassador in your workplace. You are Jesus' ambassador at the cafe you frequent every day for your morning coffee. You are Jesus' ambassador as you engage with your employees at work. William Toms has this great quote and it says, Be careful how you live, 
you will be the only Bible some people will ever read. Now, we'd love for people to pick up the Bible and understand and decide and discover for themselves who Jesus is. But very rarely is someone's first interaction with the idea of Christianity or the Bible through randomly picking up a book in our context. The context is they know someone who's a Christian. They interact with someone in their world who's a Christian. And we are often the first Bible or interaction with Christianity that someone will ever have. And so what Paul's saying here is that there needs to be a level of integrity here, an alignment between what you believe and how you act, what you think and what you say. Which means that we work hard. We're honest. We choose to treat people with dignity and respect even when it's really difficult. We choose to love and serve others even when it's really difficult. In short, we choose to live counterculturally in a world where everyone seeks to look after themselves. I have rights. I have the ability to do what I want to do. Instead, as believers of Jesus, we actually go, no, how I treat people matters. How I treat people in my workplace, how I treat people in my community, that's the thing that matters here. We live our lives with a posture of humility, service and respect in all areas of our life. That means as an employee... It it looks like you can be trusted. It means you go the extra mile. It means you actively seek out opportunities to make your workplace a better place to be. As an employer, it means you're devoted to the welfare of your employees. It means you extend grace. It means you model trust. And it means you demonstrate compassion to people when it's needed. Why? Well, because that's what Jesus modelled for us. As a consumer, you know, you might not be an employee or an employee in this season of your life and, like, can't wait, to be honest. But, you know, you still engage and interact with people who are working. What does that look like for you to practise generosity, to model servanthood, and to be gracious and humble. And why do we do that? Well, because that's what Jesus has modelled to us. You know, there have been times in my life where I've, I've got this right and it's been great, and I think I've left a really good impression of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus as I go about my life. And there have been other times where I've, I've got it really wrong, if I'm completely honest with you. Um, those of you who, who know me or are getting to know me a little bit better uh, will one day uh, understand that the most stressful thing you can make me do is travel. Like, I love it. Flying on a plane is my favourite thing in the world. But it, it comes with a certain level of stress and anxiety that produces within me. And you know, since trying to do that with two small children, it's gotten a little bit worse. But you know, about, um, I'm going to say about 10 years ago now, we were at the, I was at a, a conference for Christian youth and young adult pastors. And of course, it's held on the Gold Coast because... 
why wouldn't you hold it on the Gold Coast, right? Anyway, we were up there for a conference and uh, it was also the weekend of this Indy Supercar 500s. It was uh, Friday afternoon. We needed to get back to Melbourne to run the youth program that night and the connections were a little tight. But thankfully, because I'm a super stress head when it comes to travel, I'd planned everything out. I was like, we were already three hours before the plane even landed. It was great. Um, and I, what I didn't account for, though, that it was the weekend of the Indy Supercar 500s and Gold Coast Airport was full of youth pastors and rev heads. Great combination. And so we toddle along to the Kurtz rental car counter to so give back the keys and say thank you very much, except we couldn't get into the car park because there was a massive traffic jam. I'm like, oh, I haven't planned for this. And the stress started rising a bit and keep looking at the clock and you're like, oh, crumbs, I, you know, I wanted to actually you know, enjoy this process and now it's getting tight and uh, we finally, you know, six or seven other cars in front of us finally got into the car park and then I was looking at the clock going, we were meant to check in 20 minutes ago, this isn't good enough and the lady at the counter was obviously not having a great day either and um, I'm like, I'm here to return this car. She's like, well, where did you leave it? I'm like, I parked it where I could. Oh, you can't leave it there and I'm like, well, I've got a plane to catch lady so I'm out of here and anyway, Got to the airport, sat in the plane. My colleague was sitting next to me, a lady who uh, has been a really significant mentor in my life. And I, I sort of had that moment where I looked over at her and I went, I stuffed up there, didn't I? And she turned back to me and she goes, yep, you did. But it happens. It catches us sometimes. Our ability to model grace, to practice generosity, to be gracious and humble to people. Sometimes that's really hard to do it. Sometimes the stuff going on in our own life makes it hard for us to do what Paul is actually asking us to do. But the message here is how we treat people matters. As we follow Jesus, as we interact in our workplaces or in our community, the influence and the impact we have and the, the, the ambassadorship we carry for Jesus is an encouragement to us to how treat people well. Because when we don't do that, we actually bring disrepute on ourselves and the gospel. The next thing that Paul sort of talks about in this letter is um, being content in all circumstances. It says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicions. And effectively, what's going on here is that Paul is warning Timothy about false teachers in the church who are saying um, that you can use godliness as a main means to gain financial wealth. There are these false teachers in the church who are saying that, you know what, your character is somewhat irrelevant. The important thing here, the sign of godliness, the sign of God being impressed with you, the sign of you being an effective witness for Jesus is about monetary success. And unfortunately, this teaching hasn't really gone away in the past 2,000 years. There's you know, the hashtag on social media, which is too blessed to be stressed. You know, God has blessed me so much that I don't need to be worried about anything. Once I heard a, uh, someone sum up prosperity gospel for me in one sentence, and it's kind of stuck with me. It says, don't ask me why I have a Mercedes. Ask God why you don't have a Mercedes. You know? 
it's this idea that I know that God's happy with me. I know that God is blessed with me because I have financial success. And if you don't have financial success, well, maybe that means that God isn't very happy with you. And what Paul's reminding us here is that true godliness is characterized by contentment, which is a state of being satisfied with what we have, regardless of our circumstances. This means that we view work as a vo- uh, we don't view work as a vehicle to amass more wealth and influence for the sake of our own comfort or status. We don't use the gospel as a vehicle to amass more wealth and influence for ourselves. And if you hear teaching that suggests this, you should run a million miles in the opposite direction. Paul's saying that we shouldn't be obsessed with accumulating wealth but rather be focused on using our resources to honour God and help others. Your bank balance is not a reliable indication of God's favour towards you. If you want to know what a reliable indicator is of God's favour towards you, look at the cross. That determines God's favour towards you. And then Paul sort of jumps from that into a little bit of a warning here for Timothy and the wider church. And he, he talks about this danger of greed. He concludes by saying that, you know, um, there's this danger of becoming greedy as Christians, which is the love of money. And he warns that this attitude leads to all kinds of evil, including temptation and snare and destruction. Money is a little bit like fire. When it's used properly, it can be an amazing tool and resource. But when it takes over, it becomes dangerous. And in each of us, there's this shadow side. A part of us that can be tempted about what wealth and power could do for us personally. And we we spent a bit of time this morning already talking about the fact that interest rates are going up. The cost of living is going up. And you sit in that space where the stress starts to rise and then you realise the car's on the fritz and that's going to cost a a few hundred dollars that you don't have. And you start to wonder, you know, if I just had some more money, maybe I'd be happier. Maybe life would be a little bit easier. And if we don't keep that check, you know, checked within us, we can find that our character and our integrity that Paul said is actually super important gets mortgaged for temporary financial gain. And that's the danger of seeing financial resource as the measure of God's blessing and favour in your life. It's not going to make you happy. Money isn't going to take away your problems. Your security and your significance as a follower of Jesus isn't tied up to the Commonwealth Bank or ANZ or NAB or anyone else. As Christians, we live our lives with the mantra of my trust is in Jesus. Our lives should reflect that. So what do we do with that? I think sometimes for me, the struggle with some of Paul's letters is that it feels like a bit of a dressing down all the time. There's a bit of a, just, just do better, people. And there's part of it that's really valid, right? But how do we actually connect all of these things that Paul said that we should be doing and and not take that as a a bit of a, oh, well, that's great. How do I actually do that? I want to let you know today that this is not about behaviour modification. This isn't about 
doing things different because you feel guilty or, or somewhat judged in order to do, th- do something that you're not currently doing. See, central to Paul's messages all throughout the New Testament, throughout to, to the, all of the early churches, is this assumption that the people of God are carrying the Spirit of Jesus with them. That they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if you want to know how you can move about your life in a way that treats people with respect and honour, how you can avoid your relationship with money becoming something that overtakes in a really unhealthy way, there's an understanding and an acknowledgement that as followers of Jesus, we carry his spirit with us. This isn't about behaviour modification. This isn't about doing something exclusively in your own strength. The message today isn't go out and try and do better. The assumption here is that as members of the early church were spirit-filled people, we are spirit-filled people too. For us to live out this calling in the world that we live in, we can't simply just try harder. It's about us inviting the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, to speak to us, to guide us, to convict us, so that as we engage in our workplaces, as we engage in our communities, we do that with his spirit enabling and empowering us to do it. It's a posture of saying to Jesus, fill me again with your spirit. Fill me again so that the fruits of the spirit can overflow in my life that the interactions I have with the world in my workplace, in my community, would be ones of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Fill me again so I can trust you to provide for my needs and seek your will for my life. And fill me again so that I can represent you well in the places you've called me to be. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're so thankful for your message to us. The encouragement to us that as we go about our lives, into our communities, into our workplaces, into um, the places that you've called us to live and operate in this season of our lives, that you've called us to be your ambassadors, and that how we live and how we treat people matters. And Father, I pray for us today that instead of walking away with lists of do this, do that, don't do that, should be this, shouldn't be that, instead we would lean in and listen to your spirit afresh this morning. And we ask you, even now, Holy Spirit, come and fill me again. Fill me again so that my life can overflow the fruit of the Spirit as I engage with the world around me. Fill me again to enable me to trust you as I walk through life with the challenges that it will always bring up. And fill me again so that I can represent you and be Jesus' ambassador in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.